1: Are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wick Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, Fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wick Ba da ba ba ba. Go. I participate in McDonald's for limited time while supplies last.
2: Hey, everybody. It's fucking the human torch, you fucks. And I'm a bruiser and I'm brooding, man. I'm mad at everything or whatever, right? That's just like my deal. I'm rebellious, you know what I'm saying? And like quippy and crazy. Oh, Jake! You just
3: farted. Oh, listen here, hothead! I ought to give you uh, one of uh, Aunt Petunia's classic knuckle sandwiches, (laughs) just like we used to serve them back on Yancey Street. I'm a monster. (laughs) Nobody will love me. (laughs) How does it feel to be trapped in your body? Hacha-cha-cha. I swear to to Gorsh, I'm going to give you a big old pancake face by the time this year's done, because Mama Grimm didn't raise no nuns.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Today we're talking about the Fantastic Four, uh, my word... Uh, what a bizarre, this is just a tangled tale, uh, um, you know, and I feel like we're in a parallel universe though, where it was not Iron Man, it was the Fantastic Four that came out in 2008 and mm. took the world by storm and was the, the, this perfect model for the MCU and they were such a major part of it. And instead we, we have this bizarre turn for them in the cinematic universe and then rewind that. You know, it's the opposite in the comic books. They, they, Fantastic Four, a lot of people point to is the book that came out that first started the trend of humanistic superheroes that like had real problems and it it essentially saved comics. I mean, the way Stan Lee tells it, it's what kept him in the comic books industry. If, if Fantastic Four number one didn't come out or the first appearance of Fantastic Four didn't come out, then I don't, he probably wouldn't even be doing comics at that point because he was sort of at a crossroads and trying to figure out where to go next after the whole just like, Superman era of you know the golden age right i mean this fantastic four in a lot of ways ushered in the silver age
3: dear god stanley i have found so many websites i know
2: though it's all just of like, like...
3: I, honest to god corkboard theories of who said what who made what um it really is a once in a lifetime combination of talents because you have someone like jack kirby who has the chops who has the uh, insane style whose, like, brain is going in a million places at once. He's, you know, the same guy that created uh, Groot and uh, Fin Fang Foom and all these insane Freak of the Week monsters, also helped invent, like, the romance comic industry. Like, you know, whose in, his entire deal is once he was let free from Stan Lee, he just hit, like, balls to the wall with, like, space gods and trans-dimensional uh, nightmare beings. But also Stan Lee with this uh, kind of mighty Marvel method where he's fostering fan clubs and letters and like trying to throw in as much hip slang as possible. It created this thing that was, for lack of a better term, uh, that was grounded and relatable and exciting and uh, pulpy, but also had a heart and also had uh, insane sci-fi concepts where every week there was... Uh, Something new, something unbelievable on the page, all moving at an insane clip with a cast of characters so varied and so uh, from disparate worlds that it it honestly, it it works as this continuous, almost unwieldy, century-long history (laughs) more so than like, to the point where, yeah, when you try and reduce it to like a two-hour movie, something ends up getting lost in the mix. And so... Uh, how this mythology was built, uh, the creators that like kind of shepherded it, and then the attempts by major motion pictures to try and capture that lightning in a bottle with uh, mixed to bad results <laughs> is really fascinating. One of the first things I did when I knew we were going to do this topic is that I called my dad because my dad is the one who instilled in me a love of comic books. It was his old collection that I first rummaged through um it was uh his love of comics that like passed on to me and he fantastic four was his favorite comic book series of all time it was uh what he was introduced with I talked to him like what what made fantastic four so amazing so different and he says you know that as a 8 year old 9 year old in the early 60s uh you know there were all sorts of like you know astounding mystery comics and like funny animal comics and all this stuff, but Fantastic Four was just a universe you could lose yourself in. It took place in a recognizable New York City with all of the rain and dirty subways and big skyscrapers that he uh, was familiar with growing up in Queens. Uh, Reed Richards was this co- was this nerd, this like brainiac. This kind of uh, uh, aloof, almost introverted guy who uh, was married to this bombshell young blonde woman and had this tough-talking friend who was, uh, you know, the friend was funny and had this Jewish sense of humor, but he was also uh, melodramatic and self-effacing. So, like, you had the fantasy and your own self-deprecating reality on the team. Johnny Storm drove cool cars and he was a celebrity and hung out at, like, clubs and dated models and was, like, a swinging college student. Even something like the villains, you know, Doctor Doom was just that much more menacing and, and threatening than Alex Luther. Uh Characters like the Puppet Master was were related to other characters and created this soap opera kind of... Uh, 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 dynamic between the characters that was hard to, uh, that other stories weren't really going for. Also, the fact that, like, there weren't really secret identities. That the Fantastic Four lived and operated as the Fantastic Four, so yeah. you never had that suspension of disbelief where Batman had to like excuse himself from the debutante ball and go climb on the rooftop, or Superman had to put on his glasses as Lois Lane was like, gee, Kent, where'd you go during that big Superman fight? And just the, the unity of Stan Lee's editorial voice from everything from the Letters comics to the uh, you know, the exposition panels to all the uh, like, it created this clubhouse kind of feel when you were reading that other comics just didn't have. It created a connection. So everything was like at once new and exciting and like, weirdly base and, and like, uh, you know, give the kids what they want with like big monsters and hot ladies with living hair. But also, respecting their intelligence a little bit more with like headier sci-fi stuff and a kind of wink and nod to the reader as you know like hey you're reading a story we made this story it's old jack and stan like nuff said it it's it was this it was a bombshell it really did change the game mm-hmm. so uh just hearing him talk about that stuff i was like man yeah that must have been so you know the same way that reading bone for the first time or reading uh watchmen for the first time you know that That feeling when you're reading a comic book and you have that, holy shit, they can do that moment, was what the Fantastic Four was about.
2: Which is why it's so sad that it hasn't found its place in the MCU at this point. You would think it would, especially with the way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has triumphed with really quippy lighthearted, fair, but also like showing the human side of these different heroes while also having these big sci-fi action set pieces. It just seems like mind boggling. And I keep thinking about the episode of Nerd of Mouth, the podcast you did with Mike Lawrence before this, where you guys sat down and and hammered out what would make a, (laughs) uh, how you would make a Fantastic Four film for the MCU, right? Yeah, yeah. That's like... One of my early memories of like what you guys were over there doing, and uh, I mean that that was a discussion you were having decades ago, and we're still not there. Which it is wasn't crazy. a decade;
3: it was like uh, seven years ago. I mean, I am. <laughs> Decrepit. I'm 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 turning to sawdust live on uh, over. I display. got on
2: video cam with you and I was just like, am I doing a podcast with the Cryptkeeper? <coughs> like, what is happening? Why why is the cryptkeeper Keeper so Jewish? Uh but
3: For, uh, the Crypt Keeper is very coded Jewish. That's <laughs> not I, <laughs>
2: I guess that's right. Uh but yeah, I just I, I don't know. It's crazy that you you know this has been a conversation though for all these years, and we're going to get into how it's been bungled. Um, and at least there is a bit of a glimmer of hope for a Fantastic Four film
3: uh, in our future. One of the things that I think held them back for a very long time is the fact that uh, to even film a Fantastic Four movie would like just right off the bat anything that would be comics accurate would be. The most expensive movie ever made, even in a post end game mm. world, something like uh, out of the Jonathan Hickman run, where there's like armies of billions of Annihilist soldiers and Galactus machines and multi I'm sorry, multiple galactuses running around. and, you know, the Council of Reeds and all of this shit happening, like the ability to even capture what a fantastic four story entails has only now been even remotely possible. Right. Which is part of like, you know, in uh, Rise of the Silver Surfer, they had to make Galactus a, a cloud because we weren't ready for a big purple CGI guy with a letter G on his chest.
2: But now we are, I think. Now we totally are in a world where we've got had Thanos as like a major leading villain. And uh, I mean, just, you know, warlocks battling androids on the big screen, making tons of billions of buckaroos. Uh, for, uh, Marvel. I think, I think we can finally get there. And I'm just bummed that honestly, like I can picture it in my head right now, that big climactic scene in Endgame where everybody's battling it out. Like w- the fact that they're not there is fucked, mm. you know? So I just, and, and, and to see them, you know, they would have perfectly fit into like infinity war so well you know I could just see it really really easily I feel like they could easily be a part of a Guardians of the Galaxy film and it's all just because early on people who just didn't know what to do with it bungled it and that's like literally the only reason why and like that you can actually kind of chisel it down to like a few different names are uh, uh, that were handling the property just completely had no idea what to do with it is kind of uh fascinating and upsetting all right, without further ado, let's get into it. The history of the Fantastic Four, first in the comics and then in the cinematic
3: universe. Urse, urse, urse. I don't think it's part of any cinematic universe. I think it's just three and a half technically bad movies. Three troubling films, Films. <laughs> uh
2: So to tell the story of the Fantastic Four, is actually really to tell the history of Marvel Comics, which was founded as Timely Publications by Martin Goodman, who started out in the magazine publication business, first putting out pulp stuff in the realm of Westerns, sci-fi, and mysteries in the mid-1930s. Comic books started to catch fire by the end of the decade, and Goodman put out a test comic book as his own... uh and Goodman put out a test comic book of his own called Marvel Comics Number One, and this featured the Human Torch and the Sub-Mariner, which, of course, would become a uh, fun anti-hero, uh, nemesis-y kind of character for the Fantastic Four later on. The Human Torch is a bit different here. He is an android that can ignite himself, uh, but still, you know, something that obviously they really like to, enough to bring back later on in a different form. The book quickly sells out. And it goes on to sell around 800,000 copies. So Goodman was all in and started to put together a staff, including writer-artist Joe Simon as editor. He called it Timely Comics, Inc. And in 1941, they introduced the world to Captain America via Simon and artist Jack Kirby. Simon and Kirby, they leave for a time. uh, Kirby comes back. uh, I think Simon, too. Uh, uh, shortly after so Goodman gave his wife's cousin a young whippersnapper that was always hanging out at Timely Comics uh, wanting to get involved uh, named Stan Lee the job of editor and uh, the rest is history so let's cut to post World War II era Things that died down for the superhero biz, with the company now named Atlas going back to pumping out romances, westerns, horror rags, and more for the next decade, starting in 1951. Uh, But it was the fall of 1961, however, when things changed. The company, as always, were looking at the competition. It seems like Marvel's model, in a lot of ways, was to see what other people were doing and copy it.
3: It was absolutely Marvel's model. Like Marvel, uh, Timely, whatever you want to call it, was not a big player in the uh, in the comics world. They were not making the bold moves. I mean, a lot of comics that Stan Lee were working on, uh, oh, is Casper the Friendly Ghost working? Uh, Uncle Martin. Uncle Martin comes over to his little <laughs> nephew and is like, hey, you shit fuck, uh, make me something like Casper the Friendly Ghost. And Stan Lee is like, okay, how about... Homer, the happy ghost. And Martin's like, great. Uh, Martin comes in and is like, hey, you little fucker, uh, little Lulu's doing good. Give me something. And they're like, okay, how about little Lizzie? <laughs> and Martin Goodman's like, fine. <laughs> it really, okay. So this is where a lot of the controversy comes from because Stanley, consummate showman, yeah. consummate salesman, consummate professional, you know, admitting to himself uh, in interviews saying, hey, my memory's not the best. Obviously, my memory can be wrong. Uh, even in his own comics, he would call like Bruce Banner Bob Banner in a panel because he just wouldn't get it straight. So the, uh, the 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 mythology of how Stan Lee, you know, answered a classified ad from his tenement apartment and was like this rough and tumble, uh, like uh, go getter who like turned comics around is like a little bit fuzzy because you know he did get the job from his uncle, like he yeah. did. Uh, You know, it was, and he was just doing a lot of very hack stuff. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Jack Kirby helped to create Captain America. He was doing all sorts of stuff, doing tons of one-off stories for Marvel's, like, uh, fantasy and sci-fi novel, uh, you know, uh, compilation series. Uh, He helped invent the romance uh, uh, genre of comics, doing tons of soap opera, you know, so many qu- stories with uh, characters with quote-unquote feet of clay. Well, first of all,
2: p- publisher DC. So, so superheroes go away for a while. There's there's no more Nazis to beat up, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And so they turn to other things. You know, there's also the comics code thing coming in, uh, forcing them to stop writing, like, horror stories and seedy detective stories.
3: Oh, yeah. Frederick Wortham is like, hey, why is Batman and Robin sleeping in the same bed together? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of comics publishers are like, Oh, yeah. Uh, shit. Never mind. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, cowboys. American Cowboys. Straight American Cowboys.
2: And uh, DC ends up around the early 60s catching some fire again with superheroes. They're coming back into the fold with their Justice League of America stuff. And so, um, again, yeah, as legend would have it, Martin Goodman tasks Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, uh, who has since returned to the company, in creating their own new hit superhero crew not just one not just a Captain America but like a team they want to like put a team out there uh, copying again everything around them so apparently this is the result of a golf game that Martin Goodman had uh, with either Jack Leibowitz or Erwin Donenfeld over at DC where they were bragging they were like ah you suck at golf and also, we got a hot new superhero team. Where's your team, Goodman? You're just a dirty piece of shit. I don't know why you play golf <sighs> with me. I'm fucking horrible to play golf with. I'm just always screaming at the person I play golf with telling how bad they are at both golf and their job. And Goodman was like, oh, I'm going to get you, either Jack Leibowitz or Erwin Donenfeld." Uh, Stanley said... Uh, at the time, too, he, that he he remarks that he was at a weird crossroads in his life with the career choices he'd made. He said, "'I felt I wasn't getting anywhere. I used to say to my wife, "'Should the company go out of business? "'And once or twice we came close. Uh, "'I love doing comics, but where was the future?' Uh, Stanley then concluded that for just this once, I would do the type of story I myself would enjoy reading. And the characters would be the kind of characters I could personally relate to. They'd be flesh and blood. They'd have their faults and foibles. They'd be fallible and feisty. And most important of all, inside their colorful costume booties, they'd still have feet of clay.
3: So Mm -hmm. again, uh, a lot of this is from a web. A lot of my counter narrative is coming specifically from a website called... Uh, Fantastic Four, the great American novel. <laughs> A little bit. I mean, the, the creator of the of this page, which honestly, it's pretty much time cube for Fantastic Four. This man has done so much deep diving and so many sources and so many references to the point where he breaks down like every major plot line in real time of the Fantastic Four and how it relates to like the American story and why nothing else uh, besides this specific decades long serialized fiction could be called the great American novel. Um, Everything from just uh, quoting comics historians that are like, Jack Leibowitz, the head of DC, did not play golf. <laughs> uh, and there is no proof that uh, there was a meeting with Erwin Dunenfeld either. Uh, it makes no sense that a publisher would talk to their direct competitor and give them trade secrets and sales numbers.
2: You saying that made up <laughs> shit talk conversation I just gave
3: you is complete and utter bullshit. Jack Kirby was in a weird place because he had just had a falling out with uh, his DC editor, Jack Schiff, in 1958, because he had struck out on his own to create a a syndicated comic strip called The Sky Masters, which was a kind of far-out sci-fi space exploration uh, thing. Um, The editor there said that he was entitled to a cut of the revenue from the comic strip, which uh, Kirby disputed, and it caused a falling out with the company, Uh, He started taking freelance work with timely, nay Avengers, Um, and the comic series at the time that uh, Kirby was working on was the Fable Challengers of the Unknown, which involved a foursome of characters that were uh, exploring super science monster fighters, uh, including the heady uh, Professor Howley and the uh, tough-as-nails muscle of the group, uh, Rocky. Uh, (laughs) I forget Rocky's last name. Um, So it feels like, uh, you know, within this timeline, also Stan Lee at the time, Uh, He talks about how he wasn't sure about his future at Marvel either because they were still kind of just chasing other people's hits and they didn't have the breakthrough yet with the Fantastic Four. He struck out on his own to create a comic strip called Willie Lumpkin that just went absolutely nowhere. Willie Lumpkin later shows up as the Fantastic Four's mailman, which is a funny little thing, but it was this pastoral thing about a Nebraska mailman and his funny antics and Stan Lee just Failed on his own. Please help me deliver the mail. I'm
2: covered in lumps. It's Willie Lumpkin. He's Maybe. a pumpkin. Nothing like that. He had uh,
3: cancerous lumps. It was hilarious. So it is this kind of uh just this meeting of these two creative minds that are both in need of a hit. Whereas uh Stan Lee was having trouble coming up with like something original he could hang his hat on. Kirby was still at his creative height, making all of these high flying, irradiated, super being kind of comic stories. And it feels like, uh, he was just ready to continue that while Stanley was like, Hey, while you're doing that, let's throw some superpowers in there, because I just got a note from my uncle. Well,
2: according to Lee, it was mainly his idea, but Jack just visualized it, and the two, along with Martin Goodman, spitballed on the idea uh, before Lee banged out a story synopsis for the first issue, then gave it to Kirby to pencil it out, then returned his work to Lee, who added the dialogue and captions, a process that became known as the Marvel Method, which became a standard approach for the company moving forward. Jake, uh, please, uh, true or false?
3: Kirby defense uh, point out that there, uh, despite the the Marvel method, uh, Kirby would fill the margins of his comics pages with uh, notes and dialogue suggestions, and kind of laying out what, how he saw the plot going. And uh, many times, Stanley would just completely ignore those. Uh, one of the most, I guess, uh, blatant things about that is uh, how Stanley treated Sue Storm. Uh, You know, Jack Kirby, famous wife guy, just famous like uh, mommy step on me, big, strong lady. Yes, please. uh, 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 Guy had Sue Storm being very proactive and dynamic in a lot of these early stories. But even while she was doing that, the Stan Lee dialogue is like, thank goodness, my good husband, who's really smart, taught me how to fight. Or like, ooh, I shouldn't be able to do this, but with Reed Richards by my side, I feel brave and happy.
2: Uh, Yes, Jack Kirby has been quoted to say, it was my idea, it was my idea to do it the way it was, my idea to develop it the way it was. I'm not saying Stan had nothing to do with it. Of course he did. We talked things out. And he also claimed that Lee's previous statement was an outright lie. Mm. That is a quote. Uh, and at Lee's primary involvement was just adding the dialogue after the story had been penciled, which uh, is more uh, similar, I think, to what you're Mm -hmm. describing. But regardless, the first issue releases in 1961 has the team traveling to the Earth's core where they encounter giant monsters, seemingly heavily inspired by 1959's Journey to the Center of the Earth uh, film.
3: It is a very wonderful uh, couple of panels in that first issue where... uh they go literally to a place called Monster Island and are like, holy shit, there's monsters here. (laughs) (laughs) And then they fight the Mole Man. And already there's a ton of stuff that um, sets this story apart from other superhero comics. We're introduced to the Fantastic Four kind of in media res with uh, Reed Richards lighting a flare gun that actually spells out the words the Fantastic Four- in the New York sky, or I'm sorry, in the first issue, it's Central City, which it's weird that it's not technically New York, but whatever. That's just, uh, sorry, I hit my microphone. I'm very animated about this. <laughs> it's true.
2: He's literally turning into a drawing as we <laughs> do this podcast. It's unbelievable.
3: Welding instructor
0: Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes!
3: But as the flare lights up in the sky, we see the Fantastic Four uh, kind of just doing very mundane things. Sue's having dinner with a so- uh, or a brunch with a socialite and is like, oh, dearie me, I have to make my way out. Sorry about this. The thing is trying to buy a jacket that'll fit his gross, rocky body. <laughs> Johnny Storm is tooling around with a coop. It's uh, the cops and the army are like, don't know what's going on. And they're like trying to stop the Fantastic Four from gathering together. Uh once they uh you know using science machines figure out that the mole man is fucking with people and trying to destroy the world in the middle of the earth, um we get introduced to the mole man story and we get the full thing about how he was an ugly man a scientist scorned by society, and so he turned inwards and only in the center of the world with his grotesque subterranean minions did he find his true. Uh, a calling as a leader, as a as a king uh, below the ground. It it all it kind of has a lot of the the the, the hallmarks of a, of a uh, Marvel story from the get go. Uh, even at this early stage, yeah, it's 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 a great read if you if you can find a reprint or just find it online. Fantastic Four number one is a trick
2: And a huge success. Stanley said, before we did Fantastic Four, we might get one letter saying, I bought one of your books and the staple came out. I want my dime back. I'd hang it on the wall and say, look, we got a fan letter. As soon as we brought out the Fantastic Four, we started getting real letters. You didn't need a house to fall on you to realize you were onto something. Joe uh, Sinat, the uh, inker for Fantastic Four early on, said, that's when comic books took off. The second coming of the superhero age. Nearly success was largely due to this being one of the first efforts to write, as we said, superhero comics for a more adult audience, as, lo- as well as for kids. And it was a huge hit on college campuses uh, specifically. The iconic bodysuits were actually not introduced by Jack Kirby until issue number three. Before that, they just wore street clothes. It was also issue number three that introduced uh, a letters to the editor column and the classic Marvel slogan, the greatest comic magazine in the world, which was changed to the world's greatest comic magazine by the next issue. Issue number four reintroduced aquatic antihero Namor uh, Namor the Submariner. And issue number five introduced the Fantastic Four's greatest nemesis, Dr. Doom. Kirby modeled Doom after death, replacing the skeleton with armor, and Kirby said, it was the reason for the armor and the hood. Death is connected with armor uh, and the inhuman-like steel. Death is something without mercy, and human flesh contains that mercy. Which I That was a dope quote from Kirby. Kirby also sought to make the villain character more human than most at the time, saying, Doom is an evil person, but he's not always been evil. He was respected, but through a flaw in his own character, he was a perfectionist, which he also says is why he got the armor. He has one scratch on his face, but even that was too much of an imperfection. He had to do uh, mask his face because of
3: it. I mean, oh God, I love that version of Doom. Some people will make Doom look like a fucking pepperoni pizza under that mask, (laughs) but it depends on what continuity you're working with. I think it's a
2: cool idea that he couldn't handle just one tiny imperfection, I think, is a way cooler like uh, concept for a villain.
3: I always like that you know you go to Latviria, and uh, it's it was always amazing when he would go when the Fantastic Four would go to Latveria and it wasn't a shithole. <laughs> like that was always an incredible like, you know, oh, they got healthcare and like lots of food and everybody seems really happy. And it's idyllic. And the weather's nice because like <laughs> that just makes Doctor Doom that much more terrifying because you're yeah. like, fuck, does he have a point? <laughs> this guy I mean, I know he wanted to build a machine that would turn all of the fruit on planet Earth into mutagen bombs but fuck, he might have a point. <laughs> like, So Doom would
2: be the main villain for the crew through the 60s, and through this time, they started to create narratives that lasted over several issues, as opposed to just being like Monster of the Week kind of stuff. And they also started including what some consider to be the duo's greatest achievement, the three-part Galactus trilogy, which introduced the cosmic planet-devouring giant, along with his herald, the Silver Surfer, starting with Fantastic Four number 48, 1966. This story was full of mi- the mystical and the metaphysical, which, again, a huge hit on college campuses at the time. And oh, dear God. Yeah,
3: yeah. You introduce an ultimate nullifier, you're gonna get some stoners going, whoa. It's, the,
2: it's that, and it's like, but also, they keep it real, man. Like, they're real Dudes, bro, they're not just like this. Um, you know, absolutely perfect Superman guy. Like, they got real stuff going on. Yeah, it was just absolutely perfect for the '60s, like young adult audience.
3: I, it's just even so. This this run by Kirby and Stanley is legendary for a reason. The, you know, for all the disputes over who did what, it is definitely the synergy of the two that created this mixture of comedy and melodrama and far-flung stories with a relatable, grounded perspective, and all of these things. Um, uh, You know, you have the Fantastic Four as both, I mean, there's so many different ways to interpret them, but, uh, you know, you have uh, the family dynamic with Reed and Sue as the mother and father figure, and Ben and Johnny as, uh, you know, younger siblings that always bicker with each other. You have uh, the elemental idea with rock and air and water and fire. You could even go uh Freudian with it with uh Johnny Storm the Human Torch as the uh you know attention and pleasure seeking hothead id uh you have um, Ben Grimm the thing as the uh, ego you know with a ground moral center but uh you know still too emotional and driven by his own sense of right and wrong you have Reed as the superego able to keep logic and everything in balance and to Uh, have a more holistic perspective and carry things out with more reason and forethought and you have sue storm as the lady (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: yeah pretty much Uh, luckily they would some other people would swoop in and really develop her a lot better as a more interesting powerful character when they move forward but yes uh, still it's a great run Kirby ends up leaving Marvel in the mid-70s after drawing the first 102 issues of Fantastic Four. Other writers came in to work on the run around this point, such as Roy Thomas... Jerry Conway, uh, Marv Wolfman—I mean, legendary artists uh, uh, and writers. Artists like uh, John Ramita Sr., John Buscema, Rick Buckler, and George Perez. I mean, we've talked about these guys in like all these so many other episodes, so they all ring bells for me. But they're all just incredible. We can't—we don't have time to get into all of them, as we have to continue to <laughs> focus on. The Phantasm War over the next several decades. But by the end of the seventies, Marv Wolfman was the main writer on the book, with Keith Pollard as artist and uh that's, uh, you know, that uh, it's through, the, by the end of the 70s um, and into the 80s, they're definitely, the title is hitting a slump, as it of course would. I mean, it's been running for, for so many years at that point. And times are changing, you know? And uh, so someone needed to step in and revitalize the, the book in this ever-evolving field. That guy would end up being John Byrne. Uh, John Byrne was born in Britain, but immigrated to Canada when he was eight years old. He first got into comics reading Superman. But what bowled him over was when he discovered Marvel Comics starting with Fantastic Four number five, saying the book had an edge like nothing DC was putting out at the time. He got his start working with legendary Marvel writer Chris Claremont. We've talked about him when we talked about a lot about X-Men. Uh, he joined on X-Men number 108. I'm pretty sure we talked about John Byrne as well because he was largely responsible for making Wolverine a huge hit. So I'm sure we we spoke about him on our Wolverine episode. I mean,
3: he is 80s comics yeah. there is almost no hit series that he didn't put his uh hands on
2: i mean specifically for x-men uh, past that the dark phoenix saga days of future past i mean he was working alongside chris claremont on i mean just some of the most classic x-men books uh, that have ever come out and after x-men Byrne moved on to fantastic four in 1981 with the goal to quote turn the clock back get back and see fresh what it was that made the book great in its inception. Byrne made several substantial changes to the crew during his six-year run, including having The Thing be temporarily replaced by She-Hulk while The Thing got his own title.
3: Oh, fucking John Byrne She-Hulk. Ooh, Hachimama. Oh, boy. Ooh, the hair the physique there's the, bits of steam
2: wafting out of uh jake's ears right now it's very if upsetting If you to look were at.
3: born in the 80s and you didn't have some kind of awakening looking at a john byrne i don't even care i'm not even putting this in the realm of human sexuality if you have a <laughs> pulse you see a john byrne drawing of she-hulk in that fucking fantastic Four unitard you you're Something is happening in your pituitary It's true. I saw a
2: dog get hard looking at a picture of (laughs) She-Hawk from this era. I mean, it's unbelievable the kind of effect that these uh, titillating panels uh, had on animal and man.
3: Uh, I believe John Byrne is also the one that, uh, you know, hot off of Madeline Pryor uh, having her goth dom uh, Jean Grey moment. Uh, He turned Sue Storm into malice. The uh, spiked leather, uh, evil mistress of darkness, or whatever, which gave uh, Sue Storm kind of a moment. Oh, he also gave Sue Storm a really bad '80s mullet, but it <laughs> led. This was the moment where she was like. Listen, I've been through some shit. I've been through more shit than even you guys. I am I am now the invisible woman.
2: Yeah, she literally goes from invisible girl to invisible woman. And that's what I was alluding to uh, just a little bit ago about how future uh, folks would come in and really strengthen her character, and it really happens here with John Byrne. I mean, that, that's one of the huge changes. The things, longtime girlfriend Alicia, Alicia Masters, leaves him for the human torch at one point, causing a bunch of drama. He also delves deeper into the team's personal lives and told stories centered around uncomfortable. Subjects not seen in a lot of comics at the time, uh, such as having Reed Richards and Susan Storm uh, suffer a miscarriage, while also returning to a supportive family dynamic, not seen a whole lot since the Kirby Lee run. Like finally, they were being supportive again. I think. I think it was f- more fun for a little while to make them at odds in all these ways, but um, they were getting that synergy back with John Byrne's books.
3: Uh, another John Byrne hallmark were tons of very creative one-off episodes where he kind of did some. Fun explorations and storytelling, uh, kind of turning the Fantastic Four into a superhero Twilight Zone, where from issue to issue, you actually had no idea where the stories were going to go. One famous issue involves a, a burglar breaking into the Baxter building, and the entire... Uh, comic is told from his perspective you're literally looking through his eyes as he's like nervously trying to navigate this labyrinthine super science nightmare building as he's looking around his shoulder wondering if the fantastic four are going to burst through at any moment and kick his ass it's a really fascinating issue
2: so after his six year stint the comic received a revolving door of writers guys like roger stern and roy thomas Steve Englehart also made some substantial changes in the late 80s on the book, including having Reed and Sue retire and be replaced by Thing's G.F. at the time, Sharon Ventura, a.k.a. Uh, Miss Marvel. Ms.
3: Thing, Ms. Thing. Ms.
2: Thing. And Johnny Storm's ex, Crystal, who could control the elements. That is until the powers that be demanded he bring the two back and undo a bunch of other changes he made, which led him to finishing out his run under a pseudonym and describing that time as, quote, one of the most painful stretches of of my career, which is a little bit of a interesting eye into uh, when things can go really bad over at Marvel. We'll, we'll get a sense of that, too, with the 2015 Fantastic Four film in terms of uh, corporate oversight and struggling uh, artists trying to uh, navigate that bizarre, awful situation that was uh, 2015's Fan4Stick, as the fans like to call it. Uh,
3: At some point in the 90s, uh, they had uh, Professor Xavier mind meld with Magneto, creating a big spooky anime monster called Onslaught, which then led uh, young Franklin Richards to create a pocket universe where uh, all of our favorite heroes could be rebooted. Uh, which gave us stuff like Rob Liefeld's uh, famously barrel-chested Captain America and a Jim Lee oh helmed, I believe, Fast uh, Fantastic Four. Uh, this did not go over well either. Um, the series was kind of, yeah, kind of running on empty at this point. It just wasn't capturing the collective imaginations that it once did.
2: Yeah, so it it kind of goes downhill for a while again. It's not until I believe the aughts that the team enjoys another renaissance, uh, when writer Mark Wade and artist Mike Wieringo, Inker Carl Kessel, and editor Tom Brevort put out a 35-issue run. Wade said What I focused on was that everybody loves Sue, everybody loves Johnny, everybody loves Ben, nobody loves Reed. Reed is nobody's favorite character. So my question was, could I make Reed your favorite character? Could I drill down on that? My inspiration was Buckaroo Banzai, but a little older and more seasoned. They did a great job of reintroducing the characters to an updated audience and putting little twists on things like focusing on the sorcery angle of
3: Dr. Doom. Oh, my God. Mark Wade. Okay. So it's this this run is incredible because um, ostensibly, the Mike Waringo, who uh, un- tragically uh, died very young from a heart condition, uh, has this very kind of rounded cartoony compared to like other creators, uh, illustrative style. And the idea was to even this was a, like one or two years before even the Incredibles landed. But to give the book a kind of more family-friendly sheen, to kind of capture some of that idealism that was in the early books, um, and Wade is like having fun with the characters. He's exploring each character in a way that uh, you've never seen before. There's a famous scene very early on where uh, Reed kind of, as part of a story time, to Franklin or maybe Valeria, I forget the the one of the kids. Uh, you know, it's like. I had to, I ruined my friend's life and I had to take responsibility for that to keep them out of like government testing things. I made them celebrities. You could take a freak off the street, but people would know if the human torch disappeared. Um, I did my best to protect them. I did my best to save them. And we've had incredible adventures together. It's this like really humanizing moment, but they introduce a story in this run called Unthinkable. And this is Dr. Doom fans will shout from the heavens this story. It starts, Uh okay? It starts with a Dr. Doom wandering the streets uh, looking for his lost love Valeria, who has been hinted at before, and he, you know, talks to people, and he's like, it looks like he's trying to make amends, and he finally finds her. She's older. He's in a nice suit. He's got a haircut. He's not in the Doom armor, and he's like, I want to change. I want a better life. I've never been, all this time I've been searching for like an emptiness and it's you. You're the one I've been looking for. Like, please give me a chance. You'll make me a better man. Like, I just want to spend the rest of my life with you. And Valeria's like, oh my God, Victor, yes, yes. And he's like, All right, does that count? And a bunch of demons are like, yep, that counts. And it (laughs) turns out he needed to sacrifice his true love to gain like insane sorcerer powers. He trades in his armor for this rune encrusted flesh suit that is made from Valeria's skin. And he proceeds to use his newfound magic abilities to torture the shit out of every member of the Fantastic Four and send Franklin Richards to literal hell. (laughs) The idea is, uh, at, at this point, we figure out what the run is all about, and that is the Fantastic Four has been through alternate dimensions. They've been through the reaches of space. They've been to the negative zone. And the only place left for them to explore is the mystical, is the spiritual, is the truly unexplainable. The run, it kind of reaches its apex when uh, Ben Grimm dies tragically and they literally go to heaven. They go to heaven. They fight angels to find Ben Grimm's soul and bring him back. And they meet the quote unquote one above all who is like Uh, Let, you know, supposed to be God within the Marvel universe above Galactus, above eternity, above all the celestials, all these other pantheons of cosmic characters. And all they find is just Jack Kirby himself in his room with his drafting table. And he gives him like this heartfelt speech about what a creation means to the creator and he like redraws Ben Grimm like with his pencil, putting his rocky armor back on, and sends them back on their way. And it's this insane, holy shit moment. Um, needless to say, Marvel is not happy about this, and almost cancels the book and takes it out of Mark Wade's hands. Waringo uh, quits out of uh, you know in solidarity with Wade because of all this executive meddling. And uh, the editor that was doing all this is quickly fired, and they're brought back to kind of finish out their run for kind of a victory lap. But that story where the Fantastic Four go to heaven and meet Jack Kirby is like one of the most incredible uh, story moments in the series run.
2: So what about uh, Jonathan Hickman? Woo! All right. <laughs> That's going to kind of round up. The final renaissance is going to be Jonathan Hickman's involvement, I believe. When does he come into the, uh, to the to the franchise
3: so his story his run starts in 2009 uh it's part of the civil it's a lot of people consider Hickman's entire uh like literally everything he's ever done as part of a single coherent story but he starts uh uh Reed Richards makes a whoopsie doodle uh-oh uh in the Civil War storyline he makes a clone Thor everybody's mad at him and Hickman along with uh Steve Engelhart, I believe. Uh, start this new run, and they just bring out everything and the kitchen sink. And it kind of revolves around uh, Reed Richards growing frustrated with the world around him, and he wants to solve the problem of everything. And through this desire... He uh, finds the Council of Reeds, which is this transdimensional conglomeration of Reed Richards that are helping the multiverse and fighting their own battles. It has like fucked up shit, like a uh, dungeon full of lobotomized Dr. Dooms and everything. They're fighting mad celestials. They're doing all this. Franklin Richards gets his uh, big universe changing powers back. And things are brought up and looped into each other. We have crazy things like lore from uh, Old Man Logan getting brought into the mix. Uh, it's everything Hickman has ever worked on is brought up and remixed and pushed forward through this story. Uh, at one point, um, Johnny Storm is killed by a nihilist, uh, which a baby annihilist, don't, whatever. But this is a really heartfelt story. This is when the Fantastic Four become the FF and the Future Foundation is introduced. Uh, Spider-Man joins up after, uh, after this because, uh, he and Johnny Storm had a, had a key thing together, but they are hopping universes. Entire cosmologies are being rewritten and it keeps bouncing and building and building until you get to secret wars where you end up with, uh, the ultimate universe collapsing in on the major universe and Dr. Doom himself becoming the godhead of this pocket universe. He's married to Sue Storm. Uh, It was this giant event. People loved this thing. And at the end of the day, it boils down to just Reed Richards and Dr. Doom slugging it out like they always do. Two geniuses who both respect and hate the guts of the other because each of them just despises the fact that the other one thinks the other is capable of greater things. It's such an amazing moment. It's this Uh, Kind of, uh, you know, kind of a a, a bookmark on the entire series, because at this point, you know, uh, Disney owns Marvel. Uh, They've been doing all sorts of shenanigans behind the scenes. You know, the X-Men is becoming the Inhumans in the Marvel Universe. Like there's all these behind the scenes shenanigans going on. And Hickman's kind of tasked with being like, all right, the corporate overlords that be don't want the Fantastic Four to be a major part of this universe because of all the rights things going... You know, Marvel... Disney doesn't want to print books to promote other people's movies. Uh So he sends them off in this years-long, incredible crescendo of, at that point, 70 years of history.
2: So this is where we get to the whole cinematic element of the Fantastic Four. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's a shit show. Uh, So... Before all the bad uh, MCU film attempts, there was an unreleased mid 90s movie titled The Fantastic Four, produced by indie film master Roger Corman. We've does, talked about Roger Corman. Does Roger Corman, Corman
3: count as indie? He's like, he's back. This is back when indie wasn't a thing. He's just a schlock my Schlock
2: film daddy, Roger <laughs> Corman. Uh, it was actually doomed from the start, pun intended. Actress. Kat Green explains it's a very interesting story. she she was uh, she was in the movie. Essentially the German production company that hired Corman to produce the film never intended it to be released, but nobody knew that. They were doing it to maintain the rights from Marvel. They had to be in in production by a certain date, so they hired Corman to do it cheaply, not letting even Roger or Stan Lee know of their intentions. It was a surprise to everyone. Then, apparently, there was a termination and cease and desist to prevent Corman from releasing it, so he didn't see any reason to spend any money to finish it. Rightfully so, I suppose, but really too bad. The film has since been released via bootleg copies. It became somewhat of an underground hit. According to Cat. ours is the closest to the comic books. That's why comic book fans love ours. They think it's better because the characters are very much like how they were written. They're not serious action superhero stars. They are real people. There's a lightness to the comics. The thing is always saying something funny. There's always some level of cheekiness in there. And the new ones don't really have that. They take themselves way too seriously, which I could maybe agree. I'm sure it's not... Like a great film, Jake. Have you seen this this bootleg? Uh, I
3: watched clips of it, and it is very hokey. It is very kind of. I feel
2: like it, it kind of looks probably like an old school like Sci Fi Channel show, right? It's probably what it, what what we're looking at.
3: It's worse than that, man. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Doom's lines are not eighty yards, so everything out of his mouth is muffled by the mask. <laughs> uh, the effects on the Human Torch are not finished, so every time he's on fire, it looks like this bad 3ds max demo uh of just an orange man flailing around on screen (laughs) they didn't have the rights to the mole man so they introduced this weird character called the jeweler who lives underground and looks exactly like the mole man
0: (laughs) welding instructor alex declare knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills there's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: The legends are true! Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes!
3: What's really tragic is, you know, everybody involved thought this was their big break. You know, superhero movies, you know, Batman had come out. Like, there was money and fame and renown to be had there. Uh, The stars of the movie paid for their own PR campaigns and paid for their own flights to various conventions to raise hype for the movie. Uh, At one point, they even tried to break into uh, the studio or the warehouse where the original film was supposedly kept and they couldn't find it. And uh, the last kind of uh, nail in the coffin is that Roger Corman had to tell the director and the staff, like, "Hey, they just offered me an extra million dollars to not release it. I am keeping it, and you are not getting any share of that. Sorry, bye." Yeah. But I remember as a kid reading about it in Wizard Magazine, always wondering whatever happened to that Fantastic Four movie, mm-hmm. and the fact that it is such a uh, insane story of hubris and cynicism. Uh, is fascinating. There's a documentary uh, called Doomed that really does a play-by-play yeah. of how those events went down.
2: So the project ends up changing hands for about a decade uh, over at 20th Century Fox before Tim Story is hired to direct in 2004. Tim Story started out in music as part of Ice-T's Rhythm Syndicate, but got into directing after that with his first big hit, Barbershop, in 2002. He did Taxi, starring Queen Latifah and Jimmy Fallon after that. And then next, uh, his next film would. Be be fantastic for the film uh, has uh eowen uh Gruffod as reed richards jessica alba as sue storm chris evans as johnny storm and michael chiklis as ben Grimm. the script credit goes to michael france who did a big 90s a- who did big 90s action hits like cliffhanger and GoldenEye, as well as mark frost who you may remember from our twin peaks episode since he's the guy who co-wrote that with david lynch the first film uh, tells the story of the four uh, along the origin story rather of the four along with Victor Von Doom, who has them duke it out in the end. the The movie was pretty much panned by critics. As it was very much by the numbers, an origin story filled with one-note characters, corny jokes, kind of. It's like a low-rent um, Sam Raimi Spider-Man. I guess is how I would describe it. It
3: Definitely is trying to capture that Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Uh, I, you know, it's better than Daredevil. It's better than Catwoman. It definitely is more competent than uh, a lot of other. Uh, Pre Marvel superhero movies, were.
2: it's just kind of whatever. I mean, I think one of the first things I could point to is the casting of Jessica Alba as Sue Storm, just like w- such a misstep. I feel like she's so just there's nothing I about her as an actor that's that I mean, she's uh, translates.
3: hot, she's like, hot, and Sue Storm I is. I know,
2: hot. but that was yeah, exactly. That was like back when casting decisions were really goofy. Chris Evans uh, did a pretty good job as Johnny Storm. I'm glad he was able to like ro- move past this it's actually, in a very uh, Ryan Reynolds kind of way and like become Captain America.
3: My beautiful fiancé, Marie Luongo, is a huge Chris Evans stan. Um, also a Sebastian Stan stan, now that I think about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know... She pointed out that it is like he's so good as like reliable, heartfelt, sincere Captain America uh-huh. that watching him be this like Bad brash a- asshole yeah. is like kind of weird. Yeah, it is kind of weird. I say is great as the thing. Uh-huh. I think the uh, practical effects are uh, goofy, but like work for this movie. And if you're going to ape these early Stan Lee stories, that's what Sam Raimi did in the Spider-Man movies. So it, it kind of works that that's what they're doing. Uh, Of the Fantastic Four movies that we're discussing, I think this is the most watchable, and I think it is the closest to what a Fantastic Four movie could have been. I think it's silly that they, I don't know why they did this in this movie and the 2015 one, that Doctor Doom also has to be in the accident and get uh, organic armor out of it. I think that's dumb. Uh Uh, There's a lot of scenes where Jessica Alba, uh, has to get naked and uh, for like some hot cha cha ya ya shots that you that I think it's confirmed. We're not in the script before they cast Jessica Alba. It's like you can see where they cut yeah, around the reshoot. Just,
2: yeah, it's that kind of casting decision and stuff that I just feel like it, it makes it never it would never be able to be good enough. To stand the test of time, it just—it's very pre MCU. It's very much flou- a floundering kind of trying to find that sweet spot of like what—what what is a great big summer blockbuster superhero film, and it definitely doesn't do that. It somehow does well enough, though, to lead to a sequel, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. This movie, I think, is a no bueno. It's not a good. (laughs) This this time, the crew is dealing with uh, their newfound fame and uh, cosmic threat via the introduction of Silver Surfer, as well as Galactus, which is depicted as a giant space storm, like Jake
3: mentioned before. It's weird. Nobody likes cloud galactus i
2: mean it's also kind of like unfortunately like if they had just held off on making this sequel iron man comes out the very next year and i think they wouldn't have made this movie uh, after the success of that movie it just it's unfortunate timing i think a lot uh in a lot of ways for fantastic four when it comes to the movie adaptation stuff at this point so uh yeah that that's that's kind of what sets the precedent iron man after that um and it's just it's just another entry in the they didn't quite know what they were doing yet uh mm. category for superhero films um but you know what don't worry about it guys they're going to nail it with the next one uh, <laughs> come on they're going to come back swinging in about 8 years and really put something out amazing uh yeah so that's how we get to the disastrous fantastic 4 2015 man i did not realize how much of a crazy uh wild roller coaster ride the making of would be for this. I just thought, you, the way you told it, it was like, th- it's just soulless, lifeless, just a very, uh, ju- it's just not even fun to watch in like a so-bad-it's-good kind of way. So I didn't expect there to be such a just t- horrific well, that's, making of backstory.
3: That's the that's the crux is... Um we were, you know, we were like, oh, on the Sunday study session, I almost pronounced that right, on the Sunday study <laughs> session, which, by the way, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, and you can find out how you can take part in weekly Discord chats and streams where we uh, discuss upcoming episodes, uh, I was making a big deal, like, oh, boy, we're going to watch fant Force stick which is how they spell the fucking title on all the posters, fant Force stick Uh, it's gonna be great, it's gonna be fun, oh man, what a shit show. And so many DMs came from fans being like, it's it's not though. Like even with the explicit purpose of trying to rip it a new one, it's just kind of, bleak and boring and sad
2: yeah it's like um the avengers had already come out and they were like but what if we still tried to do a dark gritty marvel film they're like no
3: uh well so let's get into it There, but there is no well we'll get into the story but it turns out there was no we it was just one guy yeah, that was wanted- one
2: guy one guy so th- this time the powers that be at fox wanted to try a darker grittier approach apparently they th- that's what i read and so that's why they they just really liked Josh Trank's film he put out in 2012 called Chronicle. It's a low-budget, found-footage superhero film that had a grounded approach to the genre that Fox seemed to be looking for. I will say, uh, you know, uh, also, this model has worked really well for them since then and even and previous, taking a young, whippersnapper, upstart indie director that uh, is, you know, really like... Hot and up and coming, like a Taika Watiti, and put him at the helm of a big superhero film for for Marvel, uh, and and you know that's how we get Thor Ragnarok. Well, this is a great example of when it can go poorly, and uh, and and that is the Josh Trank story. It's a, it's a tragic tale. Uh, producer uh, Simon Kinberg worked with Jeremy Jeremy Slater on the script, and Trank said this in terms of what he had in mind for the first film as a setup for the second. The end of the Fantastic Four was going to very organically set up the adventure and weirdness and the fun. That would be the wish fulfillment of the sequel, because obviously the sequel would be, okay, now we are superpowered forever, and it's weird and funny, and there's adventure lurking around every corner. But the first movie was going to basically be the filmic version of how I saw myself at the time. The metaphor of these characters crawling out of hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Slater, however, spoke about major friction that he and Trank had over the vision of the film because Slater said the first Avengers movie had recently come out. And I kept saying that should be our template. That's what audiences want to see. And Josh just fucking hated every second of it. It didn't matter if they were fighting robots in Latveria or aliens in the negative zone or mole monsters in downtown Manhattan. Josh just did not give a shit. (laughs) <laughs> is the exact quote from Slater.
3: So yeah, this Slater it's at first I was like, oh, you know, studio cuz I'm always going to side on the on the artist over studio meddling, but it's this segment from a very in-deep uh talk with or pr- retrospective on Trank that appeared on Polygon in 2020. That is uh, really enlightening. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was the one. But also, Trank, uh, Trank, apparently,
2: you mentioned Cronenberg. Apparently, Trank just gets really into the body horror aspect of the characters. And then just, as you mentioned, just after that, has no idea what to do. (laughs) He's just like, that's the one thing. It's kind of just, essentially, it just feels like a director who went into it just wanting to take a big opportunity on, but had no love for the actual source material and just didn't really get... Just It wasn't his sensibility, I think, you know?
3: I, I- Trank was uh, a troubled young creator. Uh, you know, he had an early run-in with uh, the studio system when he made a kind of twisted fan film about a lightsaber stabbing in the middle of a party. Uh, he got meetings, he got like a web series out of it, and he was fucked over by the system you know, cut out from any of his dues because they were technically commercials, according to the studio that greenlit it. Chronicle was kind of this unlikely hit. Uh, He didn't even sell it. It was Max Landis. Yes, he's been canceled. Yes, he is a creep. Yes, he's a monster who was like kind of the song and dance man that actually got the idea in front of studio heads. And if it wasn't for the fact that they had to film in Cape Town, South Africa, with this unique shaky cam style, he could have gotten railroaded just as easily as he did with Fantastic Four. But Mm. he managed to create, you know, he was the youngest director ever to land a number one movie uh, on its release. Uh, You know, he beat Steven Spielberg. Everybody thought he had the magic. And really, he was just this kind of, kind of down, kind of troubled man. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it seems like the friction between Trank and Slater led to Slater writing 18 drafts with only two making it to Fox, Claiming uh, or Slater claimed, right from the start of the process, Josh told me, I wasn't allowed to speak with Fox without him present. I never saw 95% of those notes, the notes from The Powers That Be. Slater ends up leaving the project out of frustration after about six months, and Josh Trank and Simon Kinberg take the work from there. Kinberg also spoke about uh, fatigue he was suffering, after just completing the excellent Days of Future Past X-Men film. So he's kind of like run ragged excellent and trying going is into this. It's not a word I would use, but I okay. like Days of Future Past. I thought it was good. Whatever, Jake. Point counterpoint. Mm. Uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about it on some bonus content. Hey. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. This all led to a shit show of a set. Trank and Miles Teller, who played Reed Richards, almost get into his fisticuffs one shoot day um, after having a huge screaming match with each other. When pr- production wrapped, the movie didn't even have an ending. And by that time, Trank said he felt concerned for his own safety. So he bought a revolver for protection. Uh, Trank that said, was
3: because uh, fanboys on the Internet were really mad about uh, casting Michael B. Jordan as the Human wow. Torch. Which, oh, really? Yeah,
2: oh, I thought that was great casting. Trank said, I was so fucking paranoid during that shoot. If someone came into my house, I would have ended their fucking life. When you're in a headspace where people want to get you, you think, I'm going to defend myself. The very morose initial cut for executives led to an extensive reshooting process to get this thing into the shape of a superhero blockbuster while they also brought in a bunch of writers and extra hands to get the thing there. Trank said, it was like being castrated. I mean, this just really gives you the idea of what this guy's like. It's very dramatic, man. It was like being castrated. You're standing there and you're basically watching producers blocking out scenes five minutes ahead of when you get there, having editors hired by the studio, deciding the sequence of shots that are going to construct whatever is going on, and what it is they need. And then, because they know you're being nice, they'll sort of be nice to you by saying, well, does that sound good? You can say yes or no. So this all eventually leads to Trank having his cut of the film and the studio having their cut. And uh, boy, what a surprise the studio decides to go with their cut of the film. And uh, this all leads uh, as well to a now infamous since-deleted tweet from Trank that read, a year ago, I had a fantastic version version of this, and it would have received great reviews. You're probably you'll probably never see it. That's reality, though, and uh, that essentially ended Trank's big time Hollywood directing career and sent the Fantastic Four back into the darkness and away from the MCU. At least that is until in 2019. Marvel Studios announced at the San Diego Comic Con that they did in fact have a new Fantastic Four film in development with John Watts director of the recent hit Spider-Man trilogy at the helm. So hopefully, if John Watts can't do it, nobody can, I kind of feel like, you know, with with all the success he's having with Spider-Man these days. What do you think? I mean, do you think they can pull it? I mean, I feel like it seems to fit pretty obviously in with the rest of the MCU. So I just, I think they just got to nail one and then we're going to get Fantastic Four up in all of our big, you know, cinematic universe shit for years to come. A
3: lot of fans have given this a lot of thought. And one of the most common takes I see is that the Fantastic Four is a product of their times. They are this space age nuclear family thing with a pipe smoking, you know, father knows best figure and a beehive hair dude wife and like this Yancey Street palooka uh, guy. Uh, And this teen heartthrob who rides around in deuce coops, like the, maybe one of the only ways they can successfully capture the Fantastic Four is to kind of make them lost in time the same way that Captain America was frozen and brought back to the modern age from the 1940s so that he can kind of represent that time and space and ideals. Uh, If they do do the Fantastic Four, they really should consider starting them in the 60s, keeping them grounded in that space because yeah, if you that'd be cool. try and update them too much, they're just going to end up like every other Marvel hero. Reed Richards is just going to be another scientist who quips all the time, like Paul Rudd. Uh, you know, uh, Sue Storm's just going to be another uh, strong female character who, like, says stuff like, bet you didn't see that coming. I'm the invisible woman. I was invisible, so you literally didn't see it coming. <laughs> if they can, like, manage to make the Fantastic Four truly unique from the rest of the Marvel Universe as they've established it, I think they are going to do well. And if not, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a trillion dollar machine at this point. I'll watch it. Yeah. But there is something about those initial stories from Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, that tone, that those wild imaginative panels by Jack Kirby, that maudlin kind of hacha-cha-cha dialogue by Stan Lee. That uh, without it, all the other updates, all the other creators, everybody that we've talked about, from Byrne to Wade to Hickman, uh, they have no platform to stand on. It all comes from that one moment in comic book history where they decided to shake things up. So, as much as I trust Marvel, you know, there's also Marvel fatigue happening. You know, the Disney machine has been lurching for a while. So I think they really need to do something fantastic hey. to make these to do these characters justice. Also, it has to be the most expensive movie ever. <laughs> yeah, in, like in the I talked about how in Nerd of Mouth I did a pitch. Uh, this was before uh, even you know the 2015 version came out, and I was like. All right, number one, Dr. Doom needs to be piloting a headless Galactus like a mech. Number three, there <laughs> needs to be a scene where there's literally a million Ben Grimm's from any every alternate universe punching uh, a hole in the universe. Also, uh, there needs to be a scene where, like, Johnny Storm realizes he's the only Johnny Storm in the entire multiverse because he's the unlikely scenario where someone can burst into flames and survive. Like, there was, you know, I it's, it needs to be more bombastic more out of there than anything that has ever been put to screen before, because it was more out there and bombastic than it was anything that was put to page before.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I hear that. Um, I mean, I could also see Galactus being our next uh, Thanos in, in the MCU. Oh as well. yeah, yeah, I mean, he's he's a great like u- ult- ultra power, and it would be cool to see Silver Surfer fi- find footing as well. They the got to hold
3: back on Doom. They can't bust their Doom nut
2: too quickly. Do- ah, never bust the doom nut. I've learned that in grade school. <laughs> uh, I-, I always love to end these big comic book franchise episodes with like some recommendations. If you're looking to, you know, if this is um, tingled the fancy of, uh, of you in terms of reading some comics, you want to get on the tablet or whatever it is and pick some up. Uh, definitely, we already mentioned it, the Galactus Trilogy. Check that one out. We... Spoke about it before. The epic tale that spans Fantastic Four, volume one, numbers 48 to 50. I'm sure if you just look up the Galactus trilogy, you'll find it. Uh, A great example of Kirby and Lee's early work. Another example of that, The Peril and the Power. Uh, This is from Kirby and Lee as well. A four-part story running from issues number 57 to 60. And it has Dr. Doom using a machine to steal the power cosmic
3: from Silver Surfer. Brings in a bunch of other characters in the Fantastic Four universe as well. One one-off issue that I think is incredible and captures kind of the uh, lightning in a bottle that uh, Kirby and Lee were capable of is uh, issue 51, This Man, This Monster.
2: Indeed, that was the next one I was going to Which starts with
3: up. Uh, Ben Grimm kind of moping about through the rainy streets of New York, uh, only to be uh, encountered by a mad scientist who seeks to take over the thing's body and create a duplicate uh, uh, skin, I guess, of the thing. But instead of launching an evil plot, he is confronted with the responsibility and the power that the Fantastic Four has at their disposal and what it means to uh, rise to that occasion. And it's a truly heartfelt... Truly wondrous thing with tons of great art by Jekker. The
2: trial of Reed Richards is a great example of the John Byrne run. This story explores the true nature of evil as Reed Richards is put on trial for sparing Galactus's life. Uh, a, a, a weird offshoot, Grant Morrison jumped on Fantastic Four for a little bit with one, two, three, four. Uh, that's his take on the franchise. This uh, the uh, the book runs like each issue delves into the life of one of the members as they get pushed to their limits. Very Grant Morrisony, if that's your bag. Uh, and then you have uh, Unthinkable mm. was the other one I had listed, which you had mentioned before. The uh, Mike Wade, Mike Waringo, great Doctor Doom story. Is there a good ex- specific example from John Hickman? I uh, didn't have one listed, but it's just kind of. Check out just check out his run, I guess. Check out his
3: run, Fantastic Four, The Future Foundation, Secret Wars. It all kind of builds and builds and builds on top of each other for yeah. an incredible modern comics uh, experience, I'd say. Yeah,
2: baby. There it is. Our episode on the Fantastic Four. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely enjoyed doing the research on uh, this. There We're was very also bizarre. a bunch of
3: cartoons. There was a bunch of cartoons. The Hanna-Barbera oh, yeah. one is hilarious. The one with Herbie The 1970s one with Herbie, it was not because they were scared that kids would emulate the the Human Torch, although that was a plot line in a John Byrne comic in the 80s. Uh, Herbie was brought in because specifically another studio had the rights for the Defenders, which was Captain America, Prince Namor, and the android Human Torch. And so they had to replace him at the last minute. Jack Kirby literally drew the schematics and character design for Herbie and they threw him in. Uh, It it had nothing to do with children setting themselves on fire. Uh, There was the 90s one, which had that amazing theme song, which actually, uh, April, uh, closed us out with that amazing 1994 Fantastic Four theme song. Reed Richards is elastic. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) And then they had this weird, like, 2000s anime style one that I I could not be fucked to watch a single episode of but I hear they did interesting
2: things (laughs) well there you have it thank you so much for joining us if you'd like to support us further patreon.com forward slash whizbrew uh, we do weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. And we already mentioned that Sunday study session. You could join us on Discord. $15 a month. We'll cover whatever we're, we're researching that week uh, with a crew of awesome individuals. So check us out over there on that. Uh, also, check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Ho. Twitch.tv forward slash Ho. I'm doing f- uh, three streams a week uh, for sure. And then who knows? On top of that, Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. It's always a blast. Jake joins me as Puppet Jared uh, on the uh, Money Pit streams on Tuesday time from time to time. It's always a good time. Jake!
3: Ever since our VTuber episode, I've had the bug to stream, but behind a digital mask. So if you go to youtube.com slash Puppet or twitch.tv slash Puppet uh, Thursday nights, check out the Cartoon Dumpster. It's like Mystery Science Theater meets the Disney afternoon for hours of uh, comedic, nonstop, oddities from the 80s 90s and 2000s it's a very good hang i love it when people say hi from the from the podcast uh twitch.tv slash puppet jared youtube.com slash puppet jared hell yeah and always remember never stop whizzing and keep on bruising i'm a monster nobody all will love right. me <laughs> ah i can't wait to play stickball over at yancey street
2: <laughs> all right we gotta we can't never mind don't bring it back <laughs>
1: This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com/slash/investing-in-america.
1: The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. Source of destiny. Yes.